Hello, everybody. Um, I'll be reading from Matthew chapter 2. And if you think you've heard this before and have a strange sense of deja vu, that is uh, no accident. Unfortunately, I won't be lighting any fire, so sorry about that. Uh, Maybe next time. Matthew chapter 2, I'll be reading from verses 1 through 12. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, for when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. What comes to your mind when you think of Bethlehem? We were there in March. We actually stayed six nights in Bethlehem at a hotel there. It's a big city now, pretty compact city, Um, pretty calm and peaceful, actually, except for when you want to go into Israel, uh, when you want to pass out of Bethlehem into Israel, and then you have to wait in a long lineup of cars, and then the soldiers get on with their machine guns and and check your passports and and, um, all kinds of things. Always the underlying tension there. But in Bethlehem, it was pretty peaceful for us. Maybe that's what you think of, modern Bethlehem. But the Bible's full of references to Bethlehem. Maybe you think of Jacob, who buried his wife, his beloved wife, Rachel, there. He buried her in Bethlehem. Or maybe you think of Ruth the Moabitess who came with Naomi from Moab and they came back to where Naomi was from to Bethlehem where she met and married Boaz. It's a great story in the Bible. Or maybe you think of King David who was from Bethlehem. He was anointed to be king in Bethlehem. It was uh, his town and it's a, a shepherd's town. Um, but most likely you think of Bethlehem as the town where Jesus was born, where Jesus came to this earth and he was born. Certainly Bethlehem has quite a history. 
When we think of Bethlehem at Jesus' time, uh, we probably is full of paradoxes because nothing is as it seems. But the gospel is full of paradoxes too, right? And so what I want us to look at today is kind of a paradox. It's kind of a contrast. I want us to look at a contrast between Herod and Jesus. Herod and Jesus, these two. And I wanted to look at it in three points, you'll be surprised to know. The first point is where they lived. We're going to contrast that. The second point is the power they exerted. And the third point is the results. So let's look at these three things. So first, where they lived. First of all, Herod. What do we know about Herod? Well, we know that he was an Edomite. You remember that Jacob, we, we've talked about this when we were in Obadiah. So if you weren't here for Obadiah, I'll just refresh our memory a little bit. Jacob had a twin brother. So it was Abraham, Isaac, and the, he had twins, which were Jacob and Esau. And Esau became the father of the Edomites. So Herod's mother was actually a Jew. So he was half Edomite and half Jew. Uh, but the people did not accept him as a full-fledged Jew, even though they called him the king of the Jews. This Herod was known as Herod the Great, basically because he was really good at everything he did. He was good at playing the political game, at gaining influence. So the way that things worked in the Roman Empire, you had Caesar, who was the emperor, and then he had kings all around in different territories that paid homage uh, homage or homage to him? I don't know how you say that word. Is it homage or homage? I didn't hear a thing. So, homage? Homage. There we go. Did we take too long? I promise I won't say it again during this sermon. <clears throat> I should know that, but I don't because there it is. Which, by the way, no, I always go off tangent here. My brother said, I listen to your sermons, and suddenly we are in another universe, and I don't even know where you are. What is wrong with you? <laughs> That's coming from my dear beloved brother. All right. So here we have Herod the Great, and he had gained the confidence of Julius Caesar. And then after Julius Caesar was murdered, he gained the confidence of Caesar Augustus, which was the next one in line. And so he was able to rule and reign over a large swath of territory. He developed great trade with other regions. He built a very prosperous seaport, and he built many, many buildings and palaces. We saw a whole bunch of them. He built a beautiful palace in Jerusalem. He built a great hideaway at a place called Masada, which is way up high uh, on a mountain. We went there, and there were baths up there, and they had this ingenious way that they got water up there. I mean, it's amazing when you think about it. He built an amazing palace at, at Caesarea Maritima, which is right on the Mediterranean Sea. Large swimming pool there. He loves swimming pools. He built the large, the third largest palace in the world, which he called the Herodian, uh, which overlooked the little town of Bethlehem. That's why we're talking about the paradox here. This Herodian 
was unbelievable. We actually went to see the ruins. And it's a structure that covered 45 acres of land. Let me just give you some of the details here. Surrounded by nearly 200 acres of palace grounds. The upper palace was circular with four large towers. The inner circle of the palace was open to the sky and featured a garden, reception hall, and various baths. There was also a lower palace that had exotic gardens as well as this huge pool, swimming pool. But it was built, here's the most interesting thing. It was built on a hill that stood 90 feet tall. And the reason it stood 90 feet tall was because he built up the hill. He had dirt brought in so that it would be the tallest place in the entire region. And it overlooked Bethlehem. It's an amazing, it's an amazing place. I was going to bring pictures, totally forgot to have that done. Or do we have one? Okay, uh, so interesting, this palace, the Herodian. So Herod was called the king of the Jews because he ruled and reigned basically unchecked over all of Judea and Samaria. Uh, the truth is that he ruled over a larger part of Palestine than the Jewish kings had. He had more territory than they did, and he lived in lavish luxury, and it's been estimated that his wealth was greater than the gross national product of the land that he reigned over. He was wealthier than the state. Well, he was the state. This is Herod, lavish, lavish luxury about Jesus, well, I think we know the incredible contrast here. So Mary and Joseph, both descendants of King David, there was a call to go back to their ancestral home for the census that was going to be taken. Mary's pregnant. We already know the whole story. And Joseph does not divorce her. He, uh, he stays with her. Uh, he maybe thought that she had stepped out on him, but no, the the, the Lord, an angel, uh, revealed himself to Joseph and said, this is from the Holy Spirit. So he stayed with her, but they had to go together to Bethlehem. And as they made their way there, she is near the end of her pregnancy. And it's probably a very long, arduous journey from Nazareth. And they get to Bethlehem and there's no room for them. And they end up in a stable we don't know what the stable was. I've heard sermons on stables at Christmas time, and I've heard like specific things that people say. Some say it was the first floor of the of a house where the second floor was where the people stayed. I've heard it's a cave. I've heard it's this big square area out in the open. I've heard so many sermons on it. The truth is, I don't think we know. But I don't think it was nice. It was not cozy and a nice little place where all the animals were standing around and looking and going, isn't this nice? It probably smelled in there. It's where the animals were kept. Herod was born into royalty. His father had been also a king. Jesus was born in a stable. So you have to think about these two contrasts, right? Bethlehem was a town for farmers and shepherds. It had never been the center of anything. In fact, it was an insignificant town in an insignificant part of the Roman Empire. Nobody wanted to go there. If you were a Roman soldier, the worst duty you could get was to get duty in Palestine. 
because it was out of the way, far from the centers of power, which was Rome at the time. Its only claim to fame was that King David had been born there, but he was long, long gone, and it was just a shepherd town and nothing more. So the false king of the Jews, Herod, lived in a huge palace that overlooked this little shepherd village, but the real king of the Jews, Jesus, was born in a humble stable. Now, why would God do that? Why wouldn't Jesus have been born in Caesar's palace? It would have been much more influential. Why wouldn't he have been the son of a king? Why would he be born to peasants, to people who had no status, no money, no anything, no influence, no power? Well, of course, it tells us something about the kingdom. That's, that's what it does. It tells us about the kingdom. Maybe it it should inform our priorities, right? The Apostle Paul in Corinthians says, but God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. I wonder if that falls in line with our priorities as a church. I struggle with this all the time. The allure of success, I think we all struggle with it. We're Americans. This is what we do. We're successful people. This is what we're after. I wonder if weakness falls in line with our priorities at our jobs, in our neighborhoods, in the type of friends we hang around, with the way we spend our money. The kingdom of God really is about weakness so that in our weakness, he can be made strong. I ran across these verses in Ezekiel 34. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep, and I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord God. I will seek the lost. I will bring back the strayed. I will bind up the injured. I will strengthen the weak, and the fat and the strong I will destroy. That's when being fat is a good thing. I think we need to go back to that. But listen to that. Do you hear that? So Herod was obsessed with strength and power. Jesus didn't need any of that. Why? Because he depended on his father. He depended on the spirit. Emptied himself and said, I put myself in your hands. Do with me as you will. This is the essence of the kingdom. Emptying ourselves. See, the whole point of the kingdom is how God uses foolish and weak things that are completely dependent on him to shame those who are strong and powerful in this world. That's where they lived. Couldn't be a greater contrast. Number two, the power they exerted. Let's talk about Herod. So I said Herod was obsessed with power. Any power he had, he had to gain for himself by being ruthless, by being conniving, by manipulating by being strategic, 
it was all about his gaining power so he could gain wealth and he could gain all the things that he wanted. He was ruthless. He would not hesitate to crush anyone that was a threat, real or imagined. He was absolutely paranoid, so much so that he had his sons executed, his wife executed, his mother-in-law executed, and his brother executed because he had this idea that they were vying for his power. You always had to watch your back. Reminds me of something I read about Stalin that he never, he had like seven bedrooms that he slept in and he never, he, he did it randomly because he didn't want anybody to know exactly where he was sleeping on a given night because he had to watch his back because he was ruthless. This is Herod. Who can you trust? And anybody you might doubt about, you need to do something about. So the story of the three wise men that we just read, how they're coming and saying, where is the king of the Jews to be born? Can you imagine that? They had no clue about Herod. But here they come and they say, where's the king of the Jews that was to be born now? Can you imagine that that sent like a lightning bolt through him? What? We got to do something about this. And so he's immediately conniving and he says, hey, you f tell me when did the star appear and when did this happen? And when you find him, you let me know because I will go worship him with you. <laughs> and then they find out that he's, they, they get a dream saying, that they shouldn't go back to Herod. They go home in their own way. And so what does he do? He knows that the star appeared about two years before. So he has, him, has his soldiers destroy all baby boys two years and under. Can you imagine? The ruthlessness. Nothing was too brutal. No extreme was too far in order to keep his power. What about Jesus? Where did he stand on the power grid? Well, Jesus was God and had all the power, didn't he? In fact, he was the one who had made Herod. <laughs> um, it was Jesus that had given the emperor power. Jesus was the one with all power, but in order to save us, he gave up all his power. It was not important to him. He allowed himself to be born in a womb that he had fashioned. He allowed himself to be held by arms that he himself had formed. This is not what human beings do. Who gives up their power? See, if we want to understand the kingdom of God, we've got to understand that this thing of power is central. It's so central that Jesus even made a principle out of it. Mark 8, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world, yet forfeit his soul? Your power is not important. When you use it for selfish means. Power is a dangerous thing. If it goes unchecked, it can be devastating. 
as we've seen with Herod. I've been fascinated for a long time with North Korea. I've read several books on it, and it's a, it's a cult, it's a, it's a religion. That's why you can't have a Bible, you can't have anything that would smack of any other religion because every home has the dear leader on their wall, and they, they essentially worship the dear leader, and, and stories are made up about him, about how he has, he descended from heaven on one of their mountains, and how he is the one that has saved them from everything, and they, they constantly feed a story. So King Jong-un, he's, what we know about him though, is that he's ruthless, and he's merciless, dictator, and he does the same thing that Herod did. Anybody he suspects at all, he has them wiped out. It was the same as his father and his grandfather. There are informants everywhere. You can't even breathe anything negative about the dear leader or you'll be sent to one of the labor camps. But not just you, your whole family will be sent to the labor camp. I've read a couple of books about people that have escaped from the labor camps. It's, it's, it's horrible. It's as bad as you might think it is. This is when power goes unchecked. Well, what is it that drives this kind of behavior? Well, there have been lots of studies on it. From Paul Roberts in his book, The Impulse Society, comes this. In the early 1970s, a psychologist named David Kipnis wanted to know if power really does corrupt people. So in a series of experiments, Kipnis had subjects assume the role of manager over a group of employees in a fictitious work situation. In some cases, Kipnis gave the managers very little power. In other cases, the managers had considerable power. They decided whether employees were fired, transferred, or promoted. The bosses with more power were more likely to use coercive or strong tactics, such as criticizing employees, making demands, and displaying anger. They were more dismissive of an employee's performance and tended to credit themselves for their employee's success. Powerful bosses were also more likely to keep a psychological distance between themselves and their employees. Kipnis concluded that having power inflates our sense of self and makes us less able to empathize with those lacking power. None of us are immune to this. This is human nature. After the fall, this is what we do. We get power, we get comfortable, and we feel above people. Every one of us loves power. We love power over our circumstances. We love power over others, especially those we want to avoid or we're angry with. We love power to live in comfort and in ease. But the way of the kingdom is completely, completely different. The way of the kingdom is to entrust ourselves to the only one who has any real power and to let him be God and to trust him and to trust him, and to pursue him. That's the power game. It's a paradox. The power game of the kingdom is so different than the power game of our world and our culture. Well, what are the results? Number three, where is Herod now? Well, there's plenty of ruins in the Holy Land that point to Herod, but his influence is gone. For all the power he, he, he had and all the brutality that he showed, 
He lived an isolated and paranoid life where he suspected everyone. No joy there. Yes, he had power until he didn't. Josephus tells us that when he was 54 years old, he got a bowel obstruction and he died five days later. All your power out the window when you get a health condition. No power to do anything about that. You can get all the power, all the power in this world, but at what price and how long will it last? Viktor Frankl was a Jewish psychiatrist and neurologist who survived a Nazi death camp. And when he was liberated, he wrote a classic book entitled Man's Search for Meaning. It's worth reading if you're looking for a read. And he realized that people in the concentration camp were under a great deal of pressure. They had, they had taken away everything from them. Their riches, their social status, their clothes, their loved ones, their work, their homes, everything. They had taken away all power. They had no power whatsoever. And in these concentration camps, what he noticed is that there were three groups of people. The first group was made up of people that became very, very cruel, and in some cases sinister. This is a group that began stealing from others, and they began cooperating with the Nazis. They were probably the ones that were carrying bodies and doing the cremations and doing all those things. They were cooperating. They were doing whatever they, they could do, maybe informing. They were going to save their own skins at all cost. The second group just withered away to the point of dying, actually. They simply collapsed. They didn't look people in the eye because they couldn't see them. They were consumed of their own ministry. The loss of power, the loss of everything destroyed them. But then there was a third group, and the third group was okay with losing their power. They were able to maintain a capacity to give themselves for others. So the first two groups were completely absorbed with themselves. Sounds a lot like Herod. Only this third group was able to maintain hope, love, and perspective on the world that included others. By the way, they weren't really groups. The first group was very small. The third group was very small. The second group was really big. Most people just walked around like zombies. So when Franco was released from the camp, he began to reflect on the reasons for the three different groups. Why would these groups respond in different ways? Well, the conclusion he came to was that everyone lives for something. Some live for their careers, some for their families, some for the approval of others. Some live to gain power or influence. Some live to have social status. What is it that gives significance to your life, he asks. And Frankel realized that everyone was living for things that the concentration camp could take away. 
the only ones that could maintain a heroic posture, the only ones that didn't go crazy, were those whose significance in life was not something that the concentration camp could take away from them. They were living for something beyond the walls of the concentration camp, beyond what was taken from them. And that's our question today. What are we living for? See, the pursuit of power is the pursuit of control. We desperately want to control our circumstances. We tend not to stray too far from what is comfortable. And with money, we can, we can to a certain extent, can't we? Of course, until we can't. All the money and power in the world didn't keep Herod from having a bowel obstruction. We can control many, many things with money until we can't, until there's something that happens that's beyond our control. And the question is, is it going to destroy us? But see, joy in life does not follow that path. It does not follow that path. If we believe what Viktor Frankl says, then a life of self-centered pursuits is a life without joy. See, Hebrews says that Jesus, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross. He gladly gave up his life because he had something bigger in mind. And so he gave up everything. Look at some of these things. Born in a stable to poor parents in the poorest and most unimportant corner of the empire. To step out of my comfort zone and invest in somebody, it's risky. Welcome to the kingdom of God. Welcome. Because it's in reliance on his spirit that we go and we do what he wants us to do. And if we are ostracized because of it, praise his name. It can't be that we're getting our reason for living out of what somebody thinks of us. Then we're just being like that middle group in the concentration camp. And if we lose that, we're destroyed. We're living for something much bigger. What would that look like? Second implication. Let's say we do get people coming in from our three-for-all, and we invite them to church, and they come, and, they, and they're here. Would we be willing to invite them into our friend group? Would we be willing to invest in them long-term, even if they don't seem quite like our kind of people or whatever? Would we be willing to be more than just friendly on a Sunday? Would we be willing to open up our homes in hospitality? It's somewhat of a dying art. Hospitality, inviting people into our homes. Would we be willing to build long-term relationships with folks? Or do we just have our own little circle, comfortable circle, we're gonna stay in that? Or maybe you feel like you're on the outside of the circle and you haven't been let into a circle. Maybe we need to reach out even in this room. I'm just, I'm wondering if, 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 the, if the Christian life is the kingdom of God is about perpetual discomfort. See, the grace of Jesus that he would go to a cross out of the joy of getting us. Talk about discomfort. I wonder what is the implication for us? I want you to think through that. 
See, living in our comfort zones is much closer to Herod than it is to Jesus. It is following the path of Herod. And yet Jesus followed a far different path and he loved us and he forgave us. If you have called out to Jesus, you're still going to heaven. But I want to challenge you. I want you to think through. I want to think through the implications of it. Because the gospel is too important. See, the gospel really does change everything. Let's pray.